0: Good morning, let us stand together, hear from God's word. The end of Psalm 119 says, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, For I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord. And your law is my delight. Let's say this aloud together. Let my soul live and praise you. And let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. For I do not forget your commandments. Well, every tongue gets to sing his praise today. If you haven't heard, yes. Praise the Lord. The restriction on singing was lifted. so we are going to lift our voices together once again. So make sure those masks are strapped on tight because we're going to sing them off as we have ten months of singing to make up for. Brothers and sisters, let us join again and praise our God who has saved us by the blood of the Lamb. You, my God, have saved my soul. I am yours Forevermore,
1: I won't be moved. Of this, I'm sure you are
0: my God and you save my soul. I was lost, I was lost when you came for me, held in chains by the enemy. But you broke in victory. Now I'm free. I am free. You're my joy and you are my hope. I am saved by your grace alone. I will sing of your love for me. I am free. I am free.
2: it helps in the transition if you have your mask off ahead of time. (laughs) Well, welcome to this gathering of the local church. Uh, My name is David Pugh. I'm one of your fellow church members here. So let me welcome both members and our visitors here today. For our visitors, uh, let me encourage you, just like when my family arrived here many years ago, five years ago actually, uh, to come up front and to meet uh, some of the leaders here at our church Uh, That's one of the first ways to get to know our church, answer any questions that you may have. Uh, And also, uh, if you're watching online today, we of course have our email website uh, that can answer questions. If you would just email info at dscabq.com, we'd be glad to uh, answer any questions that you have about our local church here. Well, then in 2021, there's lots of opportunities for you to get involved in discipling uh, other people as well as being discipled, and that counts for both men and women alike. Well, today I'd like to let you know uh, for, for men that our next Gospel Men Seminar will be coming up on February 6th. This time we're going to have to do it by Zoom, and so we're going to uh, have our teaching via Zoom Josiah is going to be teaching us about the gospel man and decision-making. And then we'll have breakout rooms for discussion via uh, via Zoom to talk about how to apply that. So how do we make good decisions, wise decisions, decisions that honor the Lord, especially as we look into the new year? How do we know the will of God? That's what we're going to talk about at this particular gospel man seminar. So men, if you would, jump on the app jump on the website and sign up today. And what we'll do is we'll make sure you get a link and so that you can participate in that next Gospel Man seminar. Well, join me in prayer. Our great God and Father, we do thank you as we just sang about that you have saved our souls. Father, you have, though we were dead, made us alive. And that because of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has come and sought us when we were lost. Now we stand before you as new creations in Christ. And it's that great name that we praise in song. We thank you that you have called us to be part of your sheepfold. And that the Lord Jesus Christ is now our shepherd who loves us so. So we give praise to his name above every name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: Let us stand again and join our voices and sing and rejoice in our loving Shepherd King.
1: The King of love, my shepherd, is My goodness with it never could may I sing a praise within your house forever within your house forever
0: Never a bad time to remind ourselves of who is Lord of all, who is in control of all things, especially in these days when the ground beneath seems most unstable. We need to be most vigilant to remind ourselves and to look to the one who holds all things, our ancient of days.
3: guys sound good. Let's pray. God, it's so sweet to get to lift up our voices to you. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to have learned and to not forget so many good lessons over the last 10 months about worshiping you from the heart, about worshiping you in spirit and and truth about worshiping you with other parts of our body. Lord, help us to not take for granted what a privilege it is to sing with our mouths. And God, we thank you for this blessing. We thank you so much. And we thank you also for our brother Drew and for Carrie Phyllis who worked so hard to be in contact with our government. We thank you for the other churches and the other pastors that partnered with us in this effort to get this restriction on singing lifted. And we thank you for the people in our governor's office who listened to us and who heard us. God, we thank you for, as Proverbs 21 says, holding the king's heart like a stream of water in your hand and for turning it wherever you will. We thank you for turning the hearts of our government to favor us and to to let us sing to you as we're commanded. God, that's a good reminder for us that you are sovereign over government. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Lord, this week we watched with heavy hearts as it wasn't other nations raging, it was our own nation. It felt like the foundations of everything that we love about our country were threatened. God, it it grieves us what happened this last week. We lament the loss of life, people made in your image that are valuable to you. We pray for their families that are grieving. We lament lawlessness in any form, no matter whose side is doing it. We lament the sin that this exposes, maybe sin in our own hearts that has arisen from forgetting that you are the Ancient of Days. Lord, some of us need to confess to you that we have sinned and believing that lawmakers are more important and more sovereign than the lawgiver. And we have let our misplaced trust turn to fear and turn to hate. God, we're sorry for forgetting that Jesus took his throne 2,000 years ago. And that doesn't change, there is no transition in power. In the heavenly realm. And nothing that happens in America changes that. And so because you are sovereign, because you are in control, because you do turn hearts, we pray that you would use your sovereign power to bless our country. We pray for the United States of America. We pray especially for a spiritual revival in our country. We pray that you would revive lukewarm churches and lukewarm Christians. And we we pray that you would use your church, even the church in America, not America, the church in America, to be a city on a hill and a shining light in the midst of a country that is lost. Lord, we pray that you would turn hearts, the hearts of men and women, back to you. So that we would all love you and seek to live virtuously and justly, and to value truth over falsehood. And God we pray as you taught, to pray for our leaders, for those in authority over us, that you would protect them, and that you would guide them. We remember Proverbs 11:11: 11, 11, "By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted." but by the mouth of the wicked it is overthrown. Our God, we pray for President Trump. We acknowledge and we thank you for all of the good things that you have done in our country and around the world through this broken man who is your instrument. And we pray for him, and we pray for all of our leaders in light of these events and as they prepare for his term to end. We pray that you would lead them to use their mouths to build up, to speak truth and only truth, to love wisdom and to be peacemakers. We pray for our country that there would be an orderly, peaceful transition of government. And we pray for our incoming leaders. We pray for President-elect Biden and Vice-President-elect Harris They are no less your instruments. You can do good things through them too and we ask that you would. We ask that you would turn their hearts because their hearts are in your hands too. We pray that you would turn their hearts to wisdom, that you would turn their hearts to equity and justice. We pray that you would turn their hearts to protect the life of the unborn, turn their hearts to preserve our religious liberty so that we can live in peace so that we can tell our neighbors about King Jesus most of all Lord we pray that you would turn their hearts to you we pray that you would turn all of our hearts to you and in that to one another Lord please don't let politics divide us in our church please don't let us hate other people in our church, to to use our words, our mouths wickedly, even if it's on social media. God, please turn our hearts to one another and to love one another, to not fear one another. Perfect love drives away fear. Instead, God just as we get to sing together with one voice, we pray that you would make us one church. Bind our hearts together in unity and use this morning to even do that. Lord, as we sing and as we hear from you in your word, unite us together and bind our wandering hearts to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and continue in prayer through song.
0: Lift our voices and tune our hearts. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing Thy grace, streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious song, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain, fix upon. Mount of thy redeeming, Hitherto, thy love has blessed me, you have brought. Saw me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood by grace alone. God's people said, Amen. Be seated.
3: Amen. Our sermon text this morning is going to be in the gospel according to Luke chapter 19. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke 19. We'll be looking at the first 10 verses. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got the words up on the screen. You can read along. We'll be in Luke 19 verses 1 to 10. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, what a beautiful story. I pray that you would use this moments in your amazing life ministry to to show us how you seek and save the lost. pray that you would help me to say things that are true about you. I pray that you would help all of us to think thoughts that are true. And I pray that you would bind us all to you, even some for the first time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you'll see verse 1 of our text begins, He entered Jericho and was passing through. So this story that we're looking at today comes at a moment in history where Jesus is on a journey. So if you look in chapter 18, you would see that Jesus starts a, a trip with his disciples to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover for the last time. And as he is... Drawing near to Jerusalem, he comes to Jericho, a city that's about 15 miles away, on the way to Jerusalem. There's a lot of movement language in the surrounding verses. And as he's moving closer to Jerusalem, the anticipation about his being the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel, is only growing. So crowds are following him. They're wondering, is this really the son of David? There's all of this significance. There's all of this momentum. And then here in our text, Jesus seems to say, hold on, everybody stop. I got to talk to this guy in a tree and go into his house for a little bit. And given everything that is going on in the story at this time, this is really unexpected. But what's even more unexpected is the person whom he wants to be with, a sinner a tax collector. I think it would remind us, if we're familiar with the whole Bible, of one of the last times the city of Jericho was significant in the book of Joshua, when the spies come in and they stay with someone else very unlikely, a prostitute named Rahab. In both cases, God seems to include in his grand purposes these very unlikely, very sinful people, and he saves them. That's what happens here. He says in verse 10, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This whole narrative builds up to that purpose statement of Jesus. Him saying, this is why I came down from heaven for people like Rahab, for people like Zacchaeus, for people like us. And this story of Zacchaeus, it's just an illustration of what that looks like. So if you look at that purpose statement in verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. There's really three big parts of it that we could take out. There's two things that Jesus does. He seeks and he saves. And then there is the one whom he's seeking and saving, the lost. So we can use those three things to kind of break down our text this morning. In verses 1 to 4, we'll look at an example of someone who is lost, Zacchaeus. And then verses 5 to 7, we will look at how Jesus seeks that lost person. And then 8 and 10, 8 to 10, we'll look at uh, how Jesus saves the lost. So, lost, seeking, saving. That's our outline for this morning. So, first, lost, verses 1 to 4. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, we looked uh, several weeks ago at the calling of Levi, who was a tax collector that Jesus called to be one of his disciples. And when we looked at that text, Pastor Ryan kind of broke down what it meant to be a tax collector at this time in ancient Judea. And we're not going to go through all of that again, but uh, but a tax collector, if you remember, is someone who was hired by the Roman government to take taxes from their neighbors and everybody around them, their neighbors thought of them as like traitors, even blood traitors, okay? They had decided to work for the conquerors against their countrymen. And even more than that, these tax collectors, the way that they really made their money was by taking more money than they were supposed to from their neighbors. So it was not uncommon if you would read ancient literature from this period, especially from other rabbis, it was not uncommon to see the phrase tax collectors and robbers all together. And in the Gospels, more than 12 times it says tax collectors and sinners. So how would you like your profession to be forever linked to sinner? That's Zacchaeus. And not only is Zacchaeus a tax collector, he is the chief tax collector. Did you see that? So he's like a mob boss. He's got other guys working a racket for him. He has probably been doing this for a long time. And everybody knows who he is. And everybody hates him. And so the question is, why would somebody want a line of work that is associated with sinner? That makes everybody hate you? I think we get the answer at the end of verse 2. It made him rich. Zacchaeus was rich. Now if you have time, you can read through the whole gospel of Luke. You'd start to notice that especially in this gospel account The idea of money and possessions and the wealthy comes up very frequently. So by the time you get to chapter 19 and you see that word rich, it would trigger for you lots of other things that Jesus has said up to this point. For instance, in chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And in just a few paragraphs before our text this morning, in chapter 18, starting in verse 18, we see the example of the rich ruler who comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus, what do I do to gain eternal life? And you remember what Jesus says to him? Jesus knows his heart. He knows what's going on in this guy. And he says, here's what you do. Sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor and come and follow me. And do you remember what the rich ruler does? He can't do it. It says he walks away from Jesus sad because he had many possessions. He couldn't serve both God and money. And he made his choice. He wanted to serve money. In response to the rich ruler, Jesus says to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That does not bode well for Zacchaeus. When we read that he is rich, we have the rich ruler ringing in our ears. But the question is, why is wealth such an obstacle to our faith in God? Why does Jesus talk over and over and over again about money? Well, again, he says you can't serve two masters. You're going to have to choose one or the other. And in one way, this is, this is true for All of our idols, any false God, anything that we put our trust in. This is what we've been looking at a lot over the last few weeks. You cannot serve God and your status. You cannot serve God and your family when those things are in conflict. Believing in God, following Jesus, it is going to, at some point, put you to a test. It's going to put two things that you value in conflict with one another and you will have to choose. Will I be willing to lose this thing so that I can hold on to my faith in Jesus or will I lose Jesus so that I can hold on to this thing? And this is true, as I said, of every idol, anything that we put our trust in, but we are especially tempted by money. It says, the Apostle Paul says in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is the root of all evil. And did you notice it wasn't money is the root of all evil, right? You guys like Pink Floyd? They got it wrong. The love of, no Pink Floyd fans at all? <laughs> I know some of you guys, whatever. <laughs> they got it wrong. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Why do we love money? Why are we so tempted to love money? Because money, to quote Timothy Keller, is a very, very good counterfeit God. A counterfeit God, a pretend God. It's something that that promises to offer everything that God does. Have you ever thought about this? Money offers everything that God does. Money says, Do you want security? I can give you security. If you have enough of me, you'll never face hardship. Money says, do you want pleasure? Comfort? You can buy all the pleasure you want. Do you want friends, relationships? Money makes those things very easy. Do you want power? Do you want status? Money gives you those things and money has the added benefit of giving you those things on in in your way and on your time really money is just a tool that makes you a counterfeit god and we love it we love the power we love the ability that money gives us so in one way it's not unreasonable that's what i'm getting at it's not unreasonable to trust in money money does a lot of really powerful things but you know what money doesn't do doesn't raise anybody from the dead doesn't give you eternal life, and in that way it is a pretend God. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses himself, loses his life? It's easy to love money, whether you're rich or poor. I have met a lot of poor people who have money as their God. They think, if I just had enough money, then all of my problems would be solved. But it's not true. We even know this. We know money promises security, but it's not immune to a market crash. It promises pleasure, but that pleasure runs out. It's not satisfying. It can't be our true love. Only Jesus can. We can't serve two masters. Zacchaeus is rich. And it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When Jesus says that, his disciples marvel. They say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says to his disciples, you know, what's impossible with man is possible with God. God can save a rich person. And he's about to do it with Zacchaeus. So in verse 3, it says... And he, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. There's another thing that we learn about Zacchaeus. He was short. How would you like that to be forever memorialized in Scripture? Right? Like, Jesus or Zacchaeus is up in heaven, and everybody's like, oh yeah, you're the short guy. But we learn more about that. Or we learn more about Zacchaeus than just that he was short. We learn that he was seeking Jesus. If you're the kind of person that writes in your Bible, I would just circle that word in verse 3. He was seeking Jesus. And then I would go down to verse 10. It's the same word. Jesus came to seek the lost. Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. And I think... This was more than just curiosity. Like he he heard this hubbub outside and he wanted to see what the big deal was. You see that Zacchaeus runs ahead and climbs up into a tree. Now, even in our culture, that would be a little weird, right? See a grown man running headlong and then climbing up a tree to see somebody? Even just some anybody? But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this would have been humiliating. This would have been demeaning. So Zacchaeus would not have run ahead and climbed up into a tree, no matter how short he was, just to see what in the world was going on. No, I think Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus desperately. So much so that he would let everything else go. The text doesn't give us a lot of detail, so I know that some of this is speculation, but I wonder if we can't see in Zacchaeus's urgency, his willingness to humiliate himself to see Jesus. If we can't see in that, that God has already been at work in his heart to receive Jesus. Maybe God's been working on Zacchaeus for weeks or months or years to bring him to the point where he is ready to seek Jesus. Maybe he's like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he started to realize that all of this money that he has, it is not satisfying the way that I thought it would. And it is certainly not solving my eternal problems. Or maybe he was like the prodigal son in the parable in Luke 15 that had squandered an entire fortune and then had finally come to his senses. Maybe Zacchaeus has realized that he is lost. And maybe he's realized the most important thing about being lost is that lost people can't find themselves. He is lost, and he knows that he needs someone else to find him. He needs someone else to show him the way. And then he hears that this Jesus is coming through his town. This Jesus who has been preaching the truth who has been proclaiming the kingdom of God and who has included in his closest group of followers former tax collectors like him. Zacchaeus hears that this man is coming and maybe he really is the Messiah. Maybe he really can show me the way. And so he loses everything and he runs and climbs a tree so that he can seek Jesus. And then he comes to find out that it was really Jesus who was seeking him the whole time. That's our next point, verses 5 to 7. Seeking. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. This reads like Jesus had made an appointment, doesn't it? Like he had set a calendar event in eternity past, and the day has finally come. He's here. To meet Zacchaeus. And keep in mind all of the, the big things that are happening around him. That he is making his way to Jerusalem. The king of Israel. And he stops. To talk to this guy. It's like there was nothing more important. This is exactly where he was supposed to be right then. Because Zacchaeus was valuable to God. Jesus is like the shepherd in Luke 15 that leaves the 99 to go after the one sheep so that he can pick them up and bring them home. Because every sheep matters. Zacchaeus matters to Jesus. You matter to Jesus. And other people matter to Jesus. Maybe one thing that we can get out of this text is for all the big important journeys that we are on, all the massive things that we're trying to get accomplished, we need to have eyes to see people that just need us to stop and treat them like they're important, to talk to them, to learn their name. Jesus knows Zacchaeus' name, doesn't he? He shouts to him, Zacchaeus! Now, when I picture the Zacchaeus story, I always picture Zacchaeus as like Danny DeVito. And goes, you guys know? He's, okay, you know Danny DeVito. This is a short guy, is kind of grumpy guy. So I always picture, I don't know why, Zacchaeus is Danny DeVito playing a mob boss, climbing a tree. And when Jesus shouts his name, Danny DeVito almost falls off his branch. How does he know my name? I was looking for him. He knows me. Wait, what else does he know about me? That would be a scary thought for Zacchaeus. Maybe Jesus knows more than I think like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. says, he told me everything I ever did. And all Zacchaeus has experienced is that as soon as someone knows who he is, they reject him. As soon as someone knows what he has done, they distance themselves from him and they hate him for what he's done and who he is. Maybe Zacchaeus is thinking, oh no, this Jesus knows me already. And he does. Jesus knows everything about Zacchaeus. And he knows everything about you, everything that you've ever done. But what does Jesus say to Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, come down. Hurry. Because I want to stay with you. I don't want to be distanced from you. I want to be in your home. I want to be near you, Zacchaeus. You see that Jesus says he must be with him. This is like this same kind of urgency, even necessity that that Zacchaeus felt. Zacchaeus said, "I, I must seek Jesus. So Jesus says, I must be in your house. Jesus meets Zacchaeus with the same urgency, the same necessity. He says, hurry. This is the grace of God to us in Christ. Jesus knows who you are. He knows what you've done. There is nothing that is hidden from God's sight. But God is not repulsed by you. He's not saying, man, figure it out and then come and talk to me. Clean yourself up and then I'll spend time with you. No, Jesus is saying, I know you, I know what you've done, and I came to seek you and to be close to you, to be with you. Dane Ortlund tells the story of of a doctor. Imagine a doctor who specializes in in a certain kind of terrible illness He knows how to cure the disease. That's what his whole life has been dedicated to, is curing this one disease. And then he hears about a whole group of people that has this illness. How does the doctor feel about those sick people? Does he want to stay away from them? His whole purpose is to go to them so that he can help them. That's why Jesus came, is to help lost people like us. Jesus knows more than you do how sick you are and he loves you. He has compassion on you. And he wants to help you. He wants to be near you. He wants to be with you urgently. So I don't know who's who's here or who's watching this. Why you're watching? Maybe you're here because you're like Zacchaeus and you've started figuring out I might be a little lost. I might be very lost. And you don't know what to do. You have all of these regrets about the things that you've done but you've heard something about this Jesus. And so maybe you're here, maybe you're listening to this right now because because you think maybe if I seek Jesus, it can help. Friend, let me tell you, Jesus is seeking you. And I don't know what your name is, but Jesus does. He knows everything that you've done. He knows more than what you've done, how sick your heart is. And he loves you and he wants to heal you. He wants to save you. You just have to hurry and come down and receive him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe you, maybe you came down out of the tree a long time ago. But we still sin, don't we? And sometimes the lie, the accusations of the enemy can be that, that our sin still separates us from God somehow. That maybe he's even more repulsed by our sin because we should know better. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you that that Jesus doesn't love you any less today than he did that first day. He is no less eager to be with you than he was that first day. He still stands and calls your name every day. So let all of us just hear Jesus calling and saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll save you. Because that's what he came to do. He says to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. And then verse 6, it's just, he hurried and came down. You see that? He was obedience, But he says he hurried and came down and received Jesus how? Joyfully. Of course he did. This was the very person that he was seeking out. This is who he wanted to be with. And, and come to find out that Jesus wanted to be with him even more. He receives him. And I think one of my favorite things about this story, the more I, I picture it, I think about it, is that it's not happening in private. There's this huge crowd there, right? And Jesus is just yelling at a guy in a tree. Everybody is in that, on that conversation. Jesus is not ashamed of Zacchaeus. Jesus loves Zacchaeus, and he wants everybody to know it. What Jesus is doing and talking to Zacchaeus and saying, I want to be in your house, is he's honoring him, and he's honoring him in front of everyone. Have you ever experienced that? Or someone that you really respect says compliments you in front of other people? Isn't that really special? Or like I know that when my wife compliments me and there's other people around that just it just makes me feel so good. It, it makes me know that she's not ashamed of me, that she's okay with other people knowing that she loves me and she thinks well of me. Jesus is, is saying in front of everybody, I love Zacchaeus. It's a beautiful moment, but the crowds don't get it. In verse 7, when they saw it, They all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They know Zacchaeus. They know what he's done. And they won't let it go. They condemn him. He is a sinner. He does not deserve this treatment. If you you have time as a family, maybe you should read Luke chapter 15 with, with the parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son. There are so many parallels in this story. Zacchaeus is the prodigal son. The father has just run to receive him in compassion. And the older brother stands outside the door grumbling. Because the sinner is receiving mercy and receiving grace. These people here, this crowd in verse 7, they're, they're the older brother in that story the saddest thing is they don't realize that they're really the ones who are lost. They're lost and they don't know it. They think they've got it all figured out. They're the righteous that Jesus didn't come to save. He came to save sinners. They grumble about Zacchaeus, they call him a sinner, but who are they really condemning in that statement? Jesus. The problem here is with Jesus. Jesus has received a sinner. By his association with a sinner, Jesus heaped condemnation on himself, and Jesus knew that was going to happen. That was the whole reason Jesus came. In Luke chapter 22, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. The Messiah came to be counted among sinners. He didn't sin, but he took our sin onto himself was condemned as a sinner in our place. And that's how he saved us. So that's the last point, verses 8 to 10. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, a lot happens really quickly here at the end. And there's, I think, details that have been left out of the story that we can fill in. But we have to do a little bit of work. We have to be careful in how we read this or we can get confused. And the first first question I have is, what happened in between verses 7 and 8? Wouldn't you love to know? We can assume that Jesus goes into Zacchaeus' house, and then in verse 8, he just stands up and he's saved. What did they talk about? Did Zacchaeus ask Jesus a whole bunch of questions? Did Jesus ask Zacchaeus a whole bunch of questions? Did Jesus tell Zacchaeus about the kingdom of God and how the Messiah would suffer on the cross and be raised? that's what Jesus has told the disciples in Luke 18:33 but we don't know we don't know what they talked about all we know is that Zacchaeus stands up and he says i'm going to give half of my money to the poor and i'm going to pay back all the people that i stole from and in response to that Jesus says oh you're saved you're a son of abraham What is going going on? Especially with the son of Abraham. And I think that that kind of clues us into something important. But to be clear about what Jesus isn't saying here. Jesus isn't saying that Zacchaeus is saved because he wants to give money to the poor. He's not saved because he's doing good works. Like Zacchaeus is saying, hey, I know I did a lot of bad stuff. But Jesus, I'm going to even out that scale and do a lot of good stuff. Until... The balances shift and then I'm good enough to go to heaven. That's not what's going on here at all. That wouldn't make sense with everything else that happens in this gospel. No, Jesus is responding to that statement in verse 8 because of what that statement proves. Of what it says has happened in Zacchaeus's heart. And I think to really understand this, it would, it would help us to go back to the very beginning of the gospel of Luke. So if you've got your Bible, turn to chapter 3. We'll have these words up on the screen too. But I want us to to look at something that happens in chapter 3 because it will help us make sense of this thing that happens at the end of Jesus' public ministry. So in Luke chapter 3, maybe you've read Luke chapters 1 and 2 recently because that's where the Christmas story is. That's where the shepherds and the angels and all of that. You know, Jesus is born. He grows up. Well, chapter 3 is really the start of Jesus' public ministry. And it begins with John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And the way that he prepares that way is he he preaches what Luke calls a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, this is what happens. John the Baptist said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. You're starting to see how those relate to one another what happens in Luke chapter 3 and what happens in Luke chapter 19. John's message in Luke chapter 3 it kind of establishes the theme of the whole gospel story. It starts with this idea that there's wrath coming that we need to flee from. Wrath that we deserve as a judgment for our sins for the ways that we have trusted and counterfeit gods instead of the real God. But the good news is that you can be saved from that judgment. And the question is, how? That's what these people are coming to John to try and figure out. How are we saved? And John is really clear. It's not by trusting in your own righteousness. And it's not by being a blood descendant of Abraham. Do you see how John brought up the Abraham thing? That's what Jesus says at the end. The Jews at this time, they thought that they were good with God because of who their great-great-great-great-grandparents were. That because they were descended from Abraham, that all of the promises that God made to Abraham just automatically applied to them because they were in the same family. And John says that's not true at all. If God wanted to, he could make the stones Abraham's children. He doesn't need you. It's not about what family you come from. That's not what makes you a child of Abraham. The Apostle Paul builds on this in the book of Romans chapter 4. He says that the true descendants of Abraham are the ones that share Abraham's faith. They believe in the same God that Abraham did. And they believe with the same faith that Abraham had. That's what saves you. You're saved by, by putting your faith in God. That's the whole theme of the Bible. Is the whole theme of what John is talking about right here. You're saved from wrath By faith in God. But how do you know if you have faith? What does faith look like? And what John is saying is it's the fruit of repentance. When you see the fruits, that proves that you have placed your faith in God. And this ties in with what repentance is. Do you know this word, repentance? It means to turn goes back to this idea, you can't serve two masters, so if you are serving a false god like money, your whole life will prove that money is actually your god. Why do you work as many hours a week as you work? Why do you save the way that you save? Why do you want the job that you want? You are serving that master, and it works itself out in your life, in your actions. And when you turn away, to repent means to turn, when you turn away from believing in that master to the Jesus In the same way, it works itself out. When money isn't your hope, you spend your money differently. You save your money differently. Your career ambitions change because you're serving God as your master now. That's repentance. And these guys come to John and they ask John, John, what does repentance look like? And I love that he gives them really clear examples. He says that if you have two tunics You'll give one away to the poor. You'll give half of what you have to the poor because you don't need to hoard it up. You see other people in need and you want to help them. And then did you see that tax collectors come and ask John what they should do? And what does he say? Don't be unscrupulous in your business dealings anymore. Don't take more than you are supposed to take. And then we come to John chapter 19 where Jesus comes to this chief tax collector confronts him with love and grace. And proves to him that he is worth trusting in. And what does Zacchaeus do? He repents. He does exactly what John said to do in John chapter 3. Do you see that? And so it's in response to that. Not that he did good works, but that those good works prove, oh, he's got Abraham's faith. And so he's saved. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. So it's all about faith. But faith comes with repentance. The word repentance isn't in Luke chapter 19 in this section, but this is probably the best example of repentance in the Bible. Zacchaeus doesn't hide his sin anymore. He confesses it in verse 8. He says, I've defrauded people. He's not trying to act like he's got more going for him than he does. He's completely open. And he says, Jesus, you know me already. You know that I've defrauded people. Faith and repentance begins with just confession. And the whole life, as Martin Luther said, of a Christian is repentance, which means the whole life of a Christian is confession. Zacchaeus confesses, and then he seeks to make it right. He says, if I defrauded anyone, I'm going to pay him back. I'm going to pay him back fourfold. That's what the Bible calls restitution. It's paying damages. There's an Old Testament precedent for this, that if you were found to have stolen something from somebody in the book of Leviticus or in the book of Numbers, you had to pay it back plus one-fifth of what you stole. And all of that is just a way of saying, sin has consequences. When we sin against other people, it hurts them. It does damage. And true repentance says, I know that my eternal debt has been paid, but that doesn't take away my earthly debts. And I want with what power I have to make things right. And I don't know what that's going to cost me, but I don't care what it costs me anymore because I have been forgiven. And lastly, we see in Zacchaeus that not only does he want to make things right, but he is just overflowing with generosity. Money isn't his idol anymore, and so he'll just give it away to people that have needs. And even with the restitution that he makes, it's not one-fifth, it's fourfold. That's like 14-fifths. He is going above and beyond what he's asked to do by the law because he is just overflowing with grace and generosity, helping other people that are in need. Where do you think that came from? This is what he has received in Jesus Christ. His faith is in Jesus Christ now. And so Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. He's a son of Abraham. Abraham saved but the work of salvation isn't finished at least not yet at this point in the narrative as I said at the beginning Jesus was on a journey to Jerusalem so after he has this conversation with Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus repents and puts his faith in God and that faith is proven by his bearing fruit in keeping with repentance Jesus gets up and he gets back on the road in Luke 19 11, it says he draws near And at the end of our chapter, he's received as the king, the king of Israel. And then in a few more days, he's arrested. And he willingly goes to the cross and he dies. Zacchaeus climbed up in a tree because he was seeking Jesus. Jesus climbed up on a tree because he was seeking us. And that's how we're saved. The story of Zacchaeus is is just a little picture of the gospel. Every one of us is a Zacchaeus. Every one of us is lost in our sins. Every one of us needs help from someone stronger and more gracious. And while we were lost, while we were wandering away, Jesus sought us. He entered into our world. He came to be near us. Not ashamed of us, but seeking to help us in seeking to see, uh, to save us Jesus was numbered among the transgressors for us he suffered for our sins like he was the one that committed them so that what we needed would be provided he was rich and he became poor for our sake so that we could have what we needed most. He made restitution on our behalf. He paid our debts of sin and death by dying in our place. And that's why we believe in Jesus. That's why Jesus is worth putting all of our trust in and all of our hope in because he died for us and more than that, he was raised. And money has never raised anyone from the dead. But Christ is risen. And we have eternal life. And that's our hope. It's the hope of Abraham that makes us sons of Abraham. And when we believe in that hope, we're saved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our King Jesus who wasn't too good for us to keep a distance from us reject us for our sin but came close to us and died the death that we deserve to die so that we could have life. He loved us so that we could know grace. God, I pray that all of us would put our faith in that hope, in Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior and not in other things in this world. And I pray that you would lead us to be generous to others, that we would even seek out and value other people because they're important to you. we pray that by that you would save even more lost people, even this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to
0: respond, to sing out of this amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet. say So, you can be seated.
3: Is Jesus calling your name this morning? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, asking you to repent and come to him. Be like Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down and receive him with joy. And if you say, I don't know how to do that, I don't know what that means. We want to help you. We want to talk with you about that. So as Dave said, there will be people up front that would love to answer any questions that you have. If you are watching online, you can email us, info at dscabq.com. Brothers and sisters, as, uh, as I was studying this text and I was just, it really got to me. I want to know what happened in between verses 7 and 8. When I get to heaven, I'm going to find this wee little man. I'm going to ask him <laughs> What happened? But then it struck me that, you know, I don't need to know the details. All I know is that he was with the word of God. And we can all be with the word of God. It's right here. So if you want to seek Jesus, this is where he's found. So brothers and sisters, just an encouragement. This is where we are near with Jesus. This is where he comes near with us. And so I leave you with this blessing, church, from the book of Second Corinthians. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen.